Sessions in Tunbridge Wells, the new podcast from the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology. My name is John McGowan and I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm joined by two colleagues, both also clinical psychologists, Angela Gilchrist. Hello, John. And Rachel Terry. Hello, John. Now, some of us uh, may know, some of you may know us from our blog, Discursive in Tunbridge Wells, where we and guest bloggers write about a range of subjects related mainly to mental health and the NHS. For those of you who don't know us, we're a postgraduate centre in Canterbury Christchurch University, that's in Kent, UK, primarily specialising in training clinical psychologists and psychological therapists. We also conduct a range of research looking at different aspects of uh, health, well-being and disability. In this podcast series, we're going to be discussing many issues that we cover in our blog, mental health and the NHS, issues like that. Our aim, though, is to access a wider range of contributions and provide some interesting debates around some of this stuff. We're starting today with a very topical issue, We do sometimes try and offer a psychological take on what's going on in politics. And at the time of recording, in the UK at least, there's one issue that's eclipsing all others, and that's the EU referendum. Do we stay in or do we leave? The polls at the moment in the UK are quite balanced and no one really knows how it's going to go. What's a lot clearer though is that the UK public feel very underinformed about the issues even after months of campaigning. So it seems to me at this point that in this and in a bunch of other areas, we have had some quite sharp and distinct shifts in the way that we think about politics in the last two or three years in Britain and America. And it makes me wonder what's going on here. Uh, Angela, you know, you've been involved in politics, you've been involved in psychology for a number of years. Sort us out. I do think there's something quite extraordinary going on. It, it seems to me that the world has all, always been in a tumultuous place, but it's in a highly precipitous place at the moment, I would say. It seems to me that things are becoming increasingly polarised in the Western democracies. There's a shifting away from the centre to the extremes. If you think, say, of somebody like Donald Trump, who has a, the possibility of becoming president of the world's most powerful country, that is a really scary proposition for me, and I think... Terrifying, not just for you. <laughs> you know, and one wonders, how, how has that happened? How has such an extreme figure been able to get to that point? And I think it's something about people feeling very, very threatened in, in times of economic difficulty and so on. Well, it, it does seem clear that a number of things have changed and there does seem to have been a a loss of trust in some traditional structures perhaps not for everybody but for some people and yeah economic tough times there's a lot of inequality I recently heard a speaker talking about the EU referendum felt that resentment towards structures was perhaps driven by you know an increase in inequality which is something that both Britain and America really have though of course that's you know, we see this these kind of insurgencies across the whole of Europe. What do you what do you think about that, Rachel? Well, it's making me think. For me, I, I I think that we should remain in Europe, and one of the reasons for that is that I think that it is a bit of a buffer for the potential for us having more extreme governments, either extreme left wing or right wing, if we're sort of bound by by certain European. Um, rules. For example, employment law, human rights. I feel it's very important that we remain in Europe for that reason. Yeah, and I suppose our little group here would probably qualify as being pretty heavily remain group 
we work in a university, by definition, people have a very high, you know, educational level or fairly high educational level. Um, working in a university, it's a fairly high, highly educated high school group, and all the evidence seems to suggest that those people are well considerably more likely to want to stay in and also far more relaxed about the leave campaign's big issue which has been immigration you know if you're highly educated immigration you know it's it's a good thing it's people who come to you know work in your department or work in your company um we get trainees here from all across here that's marvelous it's marvelous for us i'm guessing if your educational level is lower and you live out in somewhere you know like East Kent, which is within our, our patch, <coughs> we serve NHS in East Kent, you know, those things may feel like a lot more of a threat. And there, you know, there may be a reality to that threat, both from other parts of Europe and indeed from other parts of the UK, really. I, don't, I wouldn't want to minimise the reality of that, but I think that um, the Brexit campaign and pre- previous government campaigns in the UK have been quite successful at perhaps putting problems onto migrants and immigration rather than elsewhere, perhaps government policy um, in terms of problems people may have in terms of financial problems and so on. I think it's quite easy to externalise those problems and blame immigration when there might be more close to home issues that might be relevant. I, I think that's true. And I, I think for me, who who's come from a different country, I in fact came here in 2002 to work in the NHS Um, I responded to advertisements overseas which suggested that clinical psychology was a national shortage occupation and the NHS at the time was desperate to get psychologists from overseas into the service. I suppose what's interesting for me, as well as highly offensive, is the realisation that probably 50% of the population here doesn't like the idea of immigrants and sees those of us who've come from overseas as takers who are here to sponge from the system. And I get that's really hurtful when you've come here to uh, bring skills and are in a highly skilled occupation um, that bears a lot of responsibility and, and you know we are contributing to the, the arena in that way. But I think what, what's characteristic of this particular campaign is that the facts have not meant a lot to the public, even though the public keeps calling for the facts and saying to the politicians, you know, we don't know what to believe, we don't know what to go on. When they are presented with facts, they ignore them. And this isn't peculiar to this kind of, uh, to this particular political campaign, it, it's something that humans do. You know, we, 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 we are not rational beings. We're far more driven by our emotions than we are by the facts. So it's much easier in a time of difficulty to suggest that our difficulties are created by foreigners and to make people very other, rather than to own up to the fact that a lot of these difficulties are homegrown and so on. Well, I mean, the issue of the NHS being able to survive without people coming into the country. I I read a very interesting piece on the Conversation blog um, about this the other day, and it's kind of laughable, really, that the NHS could 
you know, could really function without really large amounts of people, you know, with all sorts of different skill sets coming in from abroad. I suppose the out campaign are talking about point systems and things like that. Mm-hmm. But what I'm thinking is that those are all kind of quite political arguments and you were, you were moving into something that seemed to me a lot more psychological mm-hmm. there, which is, yeah, I mean, it's... I wrote an article about the Scottish referendum a couple of years ago, and in that I said, you know, it's not it's not necessarily a huge surprise that politicians invite us into a very simplistic place, it, it, you know, especially when we're faced with a kind of binary choice like this thing, you know, that one thing is bad and one thing is good, and the over, you know, there's an overstatement of the kind of badness of the other side. I think the psychologically interesting bit at this point is why we seem a bit more in a position to respond to it. I gather Donald Trump's favourability numbers have gone down somewhat, something of a relief to me, have gone down somewhat since the Orlando shooting. But nonetheless, there are still mm. you know, an alarmingly large number of people um, who are, are, are ready to vote for something or say they are ready to vote for something that almost seems like a parody, really, of, of, of yes. a, a parody of a simplistic campaign now I'm I would parody of what a Western democracy is really supposed to be about well I, I think it's almost like you know a satirist couldn't make this kind of stuff up really but the the question then and you were talking about a kind of you know perhaps collapse of confidence and a, and a kind of need for scapegoating and I think that's where if we're thinking about what's going on for at least some people you know there may be perfectly reasonable arguments for for Brexit I wouldn't want to lump everyone in mm. fact, I don't particularly go for those arguments but there's something about scapegoating you know a, a psychological process of maybe perhaps being able to see you know wanting to see things some of us anyway as a lot more polarized and a lot more black and white and being perhaps finding candidates who are offering these kind of quite broad and simplistic solutions um, a lot more appealing. Well, I think the more threatened people feel, the more extreme things are likely to become. Or the more dissatisfied people The more dissatisfied. And, you know, it's also been interesting in the last couple of days to see how the present government has responded to that. It's clear that the present government has now started to feel very threatened by the possibility of a Brexit. Mm. And yesterday we had Osborne's highly, highly punitive suggestion of an emergency budget and, and so on. And there's a worry with David Cameron sort of spearheading the Remain campaign that people may uh, identify dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction with the current government and therefore be anti-Remain because that's a way of expressing their dissatisfaction, I think. Yeah. And I agree with you that at the moment the um, government are kind of resorting to coercion ta- ta- tactics to try mm. and get people to vote for Remain. They're sort of threatening now that there's going to be tax increases if we vote to leave. I, there is a sort of a sense of desperation now, isn't there? And, um, Absolutely. I mean, it's clear that the Prime Minister called the referendum because he was confident that he'd win it hands down. He's clearly not so confident today. And so, you know, we're, feeling, we're, we're seeing some fairly desperate tactics, I think, in the, mm. in the last week to try and keep more people in the Remain camp. Well, there's, there's a lot of overstatement, I think, in, in these things. And the interesting thing, I think, is the why, you know, why we are more convinced by it. So is it, you know, clearly 
um, you know, we perhaps maybe as well. Actually, we associate it with both with both campaigns. <clears throat> there was a quote that I read recently by Matthew Dan Kona in the Guardian. You know, he's quite a right wing journalist, but I think he's very well worth um, uh, paying attention to. Uh, and th- this is the quote: "It says we have not sunk to the level of Donald Trump's promise to build a wall, but what the Leave campaign promises to share with those proposed uh, promises." share with those proposed Republican presidential nominee is a bogus simplicity. The most famous wall of the 20th century symbolised the division of the Western world into democracies and totalitarian regimes. The most famous wall of the 21st so far, as Donald Trump's Mex- you know, Mexican wall, has yet to be built, but already symbolises a more subtle but equally important division in modern politics between those who are willing to confront and concede the nuance of most problems of government and those who think or say they think that such intricacies are excuses and pretexts for delay. And that seems to me to be almost the very definition of a kind of simplistic populism. Uh, you know, airy, broad solutions, you know, Scottish nationalism. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't want to necessarily lump them fully in with Donald Trump, though I don't agree with them. You know, Donald Trump's kind of, we'll, we'll sort it by sorting it. <clears throat> but it's just this issue, we seem, we seem to be finding it more appealing. In, in, a, in a circumstance of where you know a certain measure of confidence has collapsed. Absolutely. It, well, what's interesting for me is yeah, I, I grew up in South Africa during the apartheid era, so I was a, a witness to all of those events. It's very interesting to me that some of the things we're hearing now are very similar to things that I heard during that era in South Africa. The sort of presence of the bogeyman making the immigrant very other, which in South Africa, of course, the black man was the immigrant, even though um, obviously black people were indigenous to South Africa, but they were almost regarded as foreigners since the government at the time wished to banish them all to so-called homelands and so on. And there are very similar patterns in people's thoughts and conversations, you know, that um, oh, they're very different. They're not the same as us. They don't um, don't have the same culture, the same standards. We'll be swamped. We won't be able to get health care. We won't be able to stop the numbers increasing. And people are very, very reluctant to look at the reality of things. And very, very reluctant to ask themselves, well, is this logically true? You know, isn't there a way of us all living together and and sharing and caring for one another? And for me, it's a bit about identity as well. I think the Brexit campaign has been more successful at tapping into this issue of British identity. And if we exit, we'll be maintaining our Britishness. We'll have much more control. Whereas if we stay in Europe, we'll be subject to their laws. We will lose our Britishness, which they play on as being so great and being weakened by being in Europe. So I think identity is a really key component of this debate. And maybe the Stay campaign need to do more to um, highlight the role of European identity and UK being part of Europe, not just separate. Well, I I went to I say I went to a talk recently by someone from the LSE, a sort of public in, information talk, and he was, I mean, he was making the point that the Brits have always been rather reluctant um, EU members, and you know I think that you know I think there's something 
in that. I suppose I think the really fascinating bits are that social psychology would suggest to us, and I say I, I wouldn't lump everyone in the Brexit campaign in this, but the notion of <coughs> simplistic scapegoats and particularly strong feelings around immigration do tend to intensify at periods of economic in periods of economic recession. And that's you know, it's very it's very worth thinking about why that should be. And certainly we're all clinical psychologists here. A lot of the clinical ways that we understand people, you know, would suggest that when emotion is intensified, mm-hmm. people tend to go into kind of more black and white ways of thinking. Uh, cognitive behaviour therapy, you know, black and white thinking. It's hard to hold the fact that actually the effects of immigration are quite complicated, really. They fall differentially on different people. But it's not It's not actually like there's a fi- fixed pool of jobs. You know, people who come to a country create more demand for services, economically contribute in all sorts of ways. And the overwhelming evidence suggests that people coming from the EU are actually not hanging around on benefits but contributing hugely to the economy. Um, but it's hard to keep that nuance. And certainly around the Scottish referendum, one of the things I was thinking about were kind of psychoanalytic theories. And, you know, the notion of, well, Melanie Klein, I'm a sort of fairly psychoanalytic kind of guy, and the notion of what Melanie Klein calls the paranoid schizoid position, which, for want of a better way of describing it, is, you know, really not being able to hold that there's kind of complexity and good and bad within a single person. So you get Bernie Sanders supporters who are absolutely demonising Hillary Clinton as the worst thing ever. It's hard, you know, I hope some of them are going to vote for her. God, I really hope so. And some of this, occasionally what you read the more extreme things about the European Union, it's, you know, it's totalitarian, it's dominant. We want to get our country back like our country is, is lost. Mm-hmm really it, you know this huge kind of overstatement and it being it being just too much to kind of hold a middle position and see the, the politicians to an extent invite us into that and some are more prepared to do that in a kind of ugly way than, than others really Donald Trump is prepared to do it in an incredibly ugly and utterly straightforward and transparent way it, it's one way of looking at it, but, but um, there are also evolutionary ways of looking at it. You know, we could suggest that we are actually very threat sensitive as a species. We are designed to respond quickly to threat and that is so, so as to keep us alive as a species so that we keep propagating on the planet. So in a sense we're responding to a very ancient reptilian brain which kind of tells us if there's danger do something about it move out the way take action whatever that's almost contrary to thinking and I guess you're saying I'm thinking that one of the very few things that I've read psychologically about a psychological take on the EU referendum was that little piece about Daniel Kahneman uh, the cognitive psychologist in the Telegraph where he was First of all, rather obviously that, you know, a lot of people are in quite an angry place, but he was he was pointing out something broader about the kind of biases that we bring to the table. Um, that, you know, we're not, you know, rational beings. We, we, you know, we jump without having all the information in all sorts of ways, really. Which is one of the worries for me about the um, relatively right-wing um, potentially media in this country and I think when people are unclear they perhaps look to what others are doing or what others are thinking and when you've got a media the front page of the sun which is very very pro-Brexit 
that that is a worry that for me for those that are unsure of which way to go they will look to what other people are doing or they'll look to others for advice and they may be therefore influenced by the sun or what their friends and family are voting um, and that's a bit of a worry for me I think. And that, that, that kind of makes me think as well of something like social identity theory mm. and Tajfel about how we tend to remain in our own group and that we're unlikely to join another group very easily mm. unless there's, there's, there's some kind of common ground that can easily be identified. Um, and actually we don't very easily find common ground with, with other groups and that's why it's so easy to other different mm. groups and regard them infer- as inferior. Well, I'm, I'm very aware of, well, hopefully not seeing other groups as inferior, but of some of those processes in myself uh, that I'm aware that I'm you know, basically probably well disposed towards the whole notion of the EU, that I can, though I can see the test problems. But I'm also aware that the out campaign would probably have to go over a higher bar mm. with me than the in campaign. So I'm not approaching it in a reasonable way. I, I think, think, Rachel, though, that also what you're saying is what you know is the difficulty of democracy, really, isn't it? Other people might vote for things that we don't want them to vote for, and they also say things that we don't necessarily want them to say. Though I think I can say that I've been quite influenced by you in this regard, Angela. We both, I think, could say grew up in systems that were quite closed in terms of information. You grew up in South Africa and I grew up in a very conservative and strictly religious family where there was a great deal of distrust of things outside of that system and information was battened down. Mm. Um, But I know that one of your great strong principles has been that we may not always like free information out there but in the long run it's it's the best thing absolutely I mean, if you look at what's happening in this campaign now in its early stages there was a complete paucity of of real information i think in this latter stages the information is there and has become available because i think the journalists have actually done a quite a good job of nailing the politicians down saying what do you mean by that what will happen if we Brexit, etc., etc. But, as I said earlier, the public is reluctant to respond to the facts. They are far more likely to respond to their emotions even when the information becomes available. And even when the information is available, both sides are present, can present the same information in very different ways, and it is quite difficult, therefore, to sort of make sense of and interpret it even when the information is available, I think. Absolutely, because some of it seems to be highly conflicted, mm. doesn't it? Mm. You know, the, the Remainers will say that we're better off in, and the Outers mm. will say that we're better off out, and both sides have managed to come up with things that that back their particular stance but there's also a hell of a lot of spin going on and outright lies on both sides on both sides both sides have behaved very badly i think political campaign i mean i think on that note we we better wind it down but i will say a couple of things we'll put some links on our um show page to the UK in a Changing Europe Foundation, who are a network of um, senior social scientists who are trying to provide clear and unbiased information from the public, and also to one of the, the fact-checking websites, a very good one called Full Fact, who 
have been calling out some of the the exaggerated claims on both sides of the of the argument, and I do think those are very well worth looking at. But before we wind up, uh, just putting aside your own feelings about how you want it to go, I just want to ask you, how do you think it will go? Are we going to stay or are we going to go, Angela? Um, I think we'll remain, but by a whisker. And Rachel? that's shifted, Angela, hasn't it? Because I remember us having a discussion early on yes. when you were much more confident. I, was, I was very confident that it would be 60 in and 40 mm. out, but I, I'm more likely to think it'd be something like 51 in now and 49 out. Mm. <laughs> I think that it may be a Brexit, actually. Or, mm. I hope which not. Which I'm quite anxious about. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. It seems to me that the polls have begun to break more, break more solidly for leave now. And I do think we will leave whatever leaving actually means because that's, of course, the other big thing. We don't know quite what leaving is actually going to mean and quite how involved we will get with the EU in a different way. But um, for me, I suppose that's a relatively gloomy but realistic note to end on. And all that really remains for me to say is that the, the best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe. You'll find instructions about how to do that, as well as links to what we've talked about on the show page in our blog. That's blogs.canterbury.ac.uk forward slash discursive. Uh, we're in the process of getting listed on podcast databases, uh, including iTunes, and that should make it easier to find us. As well as that, you can follow us on uh, Twitter, uh, cccu. A triple P S Y. I'll also put links to um, Angela and Rachel's uh, Twitter uh, accounts on that, and you can also find us on Facebook if you look for Canterbury Christchurch University Applied Psychology. We'll be back soon, and thanks for listening. <laughs>